I said last week, if you might have been here, that there are expectations that are upon our lives. If the world around us would have anything to say about what they think about Christians and Christian community and believers, um, they would say that we are expected to be connected. They hear the message that we have that Christ is a mediator between God and man. They hear the message that the Holy Spirit gives us power. And so they expect us to be connected to God. And thereby, and therefore, sometimes they hope to cash in on that, or they may come asking for help. We talked about the story of the man who brought his boy to the disciples and said, my boy is, is attacked by a demon. And I brought him to your disciples because I expected they would be able to help him. They should be able to pray and cast this demon out of him. Right or wrong, the expectation is there. So we, we talked about that. And then last week, we talked about the fact that within the Christian community, we trust each other to have enough balance and strength and poise and, and passion to help each other. And so we're trusted to be adjusted. We're, we're, we just have an assumption that I can go to another Christian and I can find some kind of help. I can find some kind of support. I can find some kind of wisdom. So these are expectations that people have upon us. But guess who else has expectations upon us and for us? God. And probably they are many. I'm just going to mention one. God put us in this world and gave us life with the anticipation that we would express some appreciation. He expects it. He didn't just toss us down here and say, well, I guess that's the last I'll ever hear of them. He put us down here and said, I hope and expect to hear a lot of them because I'm giving them everything. I'm providing them with life and everything to live it. So I would expect that they're going to be throwing up a lot of songs, a lot of prayers, a lot of high fives and saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I would expect that that would go on a lot because I have made it possible for them to have life. So I want to talk about that particular idea that from God toward us is this anticipation of appreciation. He doesn't have a blank slate. He has a slate that's heavy with waiting and anticipation for us to express praise and gratitude and glory and honor and, and so forth. I want to use one verse or look at one verse. Um, somebody said, I don't get that verse. That verse it doesn't make much sense to me. I understand. It's a very difficult verse. I don't know that I understand all of what it's saying, but I'm going to take a crack at it. This is Psalm 8, verse 2. And this is what it says. From the lips of children and infants, you, God, have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. We know that this verse has been used, was, was repeated and used again several times in the New Testament. Even Jesus quoted this verse on the entry into Jerusalem on what we call uh, Palm Sunday. And the situation there was, I'll just, I'll just 
reference that. The situation there was that um, Jesus came into the city riding on the colt. You remember the story. And the kids got so excited because the kids sensed and realized there was something unique about Jesus. There was an honesty. There was a humility. There was a dignity. There was a truth. And the kids just picked this up. And it says the kids just broke into cries of gratitude and praise. The Hebrew word yasha means to save. And so hosanna or haoshasha means to, to, to save. And these kids were yelling basically that he was the savior. Hosanna, hosanna. And um, they were, they were um, expressing gratitude and glory. The children. And it says there in Matthew 21... It says that the leaders, the temple police, some of the crusty old snobby, I'll use the word snotty, kind of stodgy leaders, were indignant. Now, can you imagine? Think about it for a second. A kid is having a good time. A kid is, is expressing uh, a, a, a profound, natural instinct that something is good and they're happy about it and they're praising God. Can you imagine being indignant about it? Saying, that's terrible. What's wrong with those kids? And trying to basically shut them down. And, but that's what they were doing. And Jesus said to them, you know, it's been described about you in the Psalms. From the lips of children you have ordained praise to shut up or to silence the people who refuse to praise God on their own. They're God's enemies, basically. They're not going to give Him glory. They're not going to give Him recognition. And so God puts it in the hearts of kids too innocent to, too innocent to say no. I think that's the meaning of it, that the Lord uses children to express gratitude and glory because adults are too proud and too vain and too... Um, too caught up in themselves to take time to praise God. So the Lord lays it on the hearts of kids so that we'll look at them and we'll be ashamed and we'll shut up and we'll praise God along with them. To, to put us to silence, to put us to shame when we as adults who should be able to reason from the beginning to the product to the ending, we should be able more than anybody else. We should have the adults who, who have an understanding should have more reason to praise God than any child. And yet often children lead the way. And it says, I think it's saying that this is, this is how God has allowed it to be. But I want to take a moment to think about this word ordained. It, it's there in, in, in bold. What does this mean? God, I'm saying to you, He expects us to praise Him. What does this mean that God has ordained it? Well, here's what it means. When, when something is ordained, it becomes official. When something is ordained, it means that it is now authorized. This is legitimate, real deal. This is not some fabrication. If this has the ordination stamp or the ordination seal or the words of ordination put over it, it means that it is official, 
It is ordered thus, and it is expected to be carried out or be performed. We don't use that word a whole lot. It's kind of not a real common word, I, I guess. But once in a while, somebody might say, hey, did you know that so-and-so is doing this or that? And you might say, sure, I know. I ordained it. I gave my okay. I gave my blessing. In fact, it was in order. So I'm sure I, sure I know that it's happening. I wanted to, I, I'm the one who asked it to be done. Then that's something that's been ordained. It's, it's set in motion. It's a pretty strong, heavy word. So let me back it up one time. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordered praise. You have set things in motion so that we would praise you. It's a pretty strong mandate. Praise of God. Worship of God. Gratitude and glory and honor and respect and recognition of God. is not something that we're a genius if we come up with. Or we think somehow we will impress Him. He already is expecting it. And He set things in place so that we would fulfill praise and glory to Him. Alright, I want to take a couple minutes. And I'm going to go to four people in the Bible. These are just four stories that I picked out of the Scripture. And I want to illustrate a lesson that they learned about praising God. And this first one uh, is in Isaiah chapter 38. I'm going to read part of it. Isaiah wrote at the end of the 8th century B.C. And the king in Judah, southern part of Israel, at that time, is a guy named Hezekiah. Isaiah 38. Hezekiah had some issues. Up north and west of him in what today is Iraq, the city of Kirkuk, but at that time it was called Nineveh, there was a king of the Assyrian people who looked over to the west and land of Judah and said, I want all of it. And his name was Sennacherib, and his father's name was Esarhaddon. And uh, together they worked out a campaign and they slaughtered and destroyed and so forth. We know exactly when this happened because we hear about it and know about it both in the Bible and also from the annals of Sennacherib, which have survived and are in the British Museum in London today. And it was in the year 701 B.C. that Sennacherib says that he pinned up Hezekiah like a bird in a cage as he surrounded Jerusalem with his army. That's exactly what's described um, in the chapter or two before this. But during all this drama... When his kingdom is under attack and then his capital city is under siege, Hezekiah got sick. I, can't, I, 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 cannot, I can easily imagine why he would get sick. I mean, everything about his life was under pure stress. And he got so sick that it appeared he was going to die. In fact, the, the prophet Isaiah sent a message to him and said, Hezekiah, Get your affairs in order. You're going to die. Well, Hezekiah was more than heartbroken. It tells us that he used this as a place of intense introspection in his life. 
And he prayed a prayer like it's just an incredible prayer. I'm going to read it in Isaiah 38. In those days, Hezekiah became ill and he was at the point of death. And the prophet Isaiah went to him and said, this is what the Lord says. Put your house in order. You're going to die. You're not recover. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and he prayed to the Lord. Remember, O Lord, how I walked before you faithfully with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And he wept bitterly. And the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and tell Hezekiah, this is what the Lord says, the God of your fathers. I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. I will add 15 years to your life. And I will deliver you and this city from the hand of Assyria. I will defend this city. And this is the Lord's sign to you that the Lord will do what he's promised. I will make the shadow... Cast by the sun, they used a sundial type of a timekeeping device. I will make the shadows cast by the sun go back up the ten steps that it's already going down on the stairway. So it would be a miraculous sign that the Lord said, here's what you're going to see. Instead of the shadow going this way as it always does, you watch, it's going to come back. And that just don't happen. <laughs> there is no way under the, under the sun... <laughs> that that could happen, right? And so the Lord gave him, and, and amazingly, it happened. And he watched the sun, the shadow, crawl its way back up the steps where it usually would be going the other way. And he realized that God's word was true. And, and, and so look at verse 9. It says, after his illness and his recovery. So now that's all a bit behind him. And he sits down and he writes his thoughts down. And there's some powerful stuff that he, that he writes in his thoughts. He says, I said, in the prime of my life, must I go through the gates of death and be robbed of the rest of my years? I said, I will not see the Lord again in the land of the living. No longer will I look on mankind or be with those who dwell in this world. Like a shepherd's tent in my house has been pulled down and taken from me. Like a weaver, I've been rolled up in my life and he's cut me off from the loom day and night. You made an end of me. I waited patiently till dawn, but like a lion, he broke all my bones. I mean, he's going through the whole misery. He's remembering all this horrible sickness. I cried out like a swift or a thrush. I moaned like a morning dove. My eyes grew weak as I looked to heaven. I was troubled and I said, Lord, come to my aid. But, verse 15, what can I say? He has spoken to me and he himself has done this. And now, I will walk humbly all my years because of this anguish of my soul. Lord, by such things men's li men live, and my spirit finds life in them. You restored me to health, and you let me live. Surely it was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. In your love, you kept me from the pit of destruction, and you put all my sins behind your back. Now, listen, this is the part that I read this to get to. For the grave cannot praise you, and death cannot sing your praise, and those who go down into the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, they praise you as I am doing today. Fathers, tell their children about your faithfulness. So here's his lesson. I got to praise God while I'm alive. That's what Hezekiah said. I realized that if I died... Yes, I may be in the presence of the Lord, but the praise that I would offer Him, the, uh, the, the, the recognition wouldn't have an audience like it would if I, while I'm living my life, am able to praise God. Okay, let me go to a second person. This is in the book of Acts. His, uh, his lesson is in chapter 12 of Acts. 
and I'm not going to take time to read all of it, but this guy was named Herod. He was the king uh, put on the throne by the Romans over the provinces of Judea and Israel and Galilee. His name was actually Herod Agrippa. He was the grandson of the guy who had tried to kill Jesus and, um, and it's called Herod the Great. Anyway, um, he was old, infirm, near the end of his, of his life apparently, and he was also incredibly uh, arrogant. He was very self-centered. I mean, we know a lot about this guy from other sources than the Bible. He was extremely wicked. He killed a couple of his wives. He killed a couple of his sons. I mean, this guy was, he was, uh, he was, he was not good news. Well, there was, uh, there was an incident where a, a number of Jews went to meet with him to beg his help in a project. And it says that when Herod came out to make audience with them or to have audience with them, he had on all his royal robes and he was decked out with, with every bit of finery of his office. And the sun happened to break out of the clouds and shine on him. And it was, it was just like too much. And it says the crowd in, in this moment of political uh, chicanery, really, just bowed down on the ground and said, this guy isn't even a man, he's a god. And they bowed down and they bowed down in front of him. And they, they just got ridiculous. And guess what Herod did? It says Herod just soaked it all up. And he sat there and basically said, yeah, I think maybe I am a god. I'm not just a person. It says God struck him. Now, I don't know if it was an immediate thing or not, but he died a horrible death. A very quick and violent death. Uh, the New Testament mentions worms. I don't know, some kind of uh, intestinal situation that quickly took Herod out. And it says it was specifically because when this praise from the people came to him, he did not give glory back to God. God anticipates that we appreciate and if we don't appreciate, and we just think it's somehow it's all ours to grab, then God has something to say about that. So, this is what we learn from Herod. When God blesses you, and you succeed, as Herod did, he was king. You couldn't go any higher than what he was. But he didn't want to acknowledge that this was any kind of a gift or a blessing. He didn't want to acknowledge God's help in this. Herod just said, this, this, is, this is good to hear. I like to hear people singing my praises. And he didn't acknowledge that any of the success, I mean, he had had a great deal of help from the Romans as well. He did, but he, we, we need, this is the lesson, when, when we are successful, it doesn't matter what, successful marriage, a successful business, successful career, a successful uh, a journey or a project. That's when we need to deflect the honor and the praise and the gratitude and say, Lord, other people would look at this and say, wow, I was successful, but I know it was because you blessed me. That's what I know. God anticipates that we would do that. He expects and hopes that we would do that. Herod didn't do that, and God took him out. Here's a third. This, uh, 
This story is in the book of Daniel, chapter 4. You're probably familiar with it. I'm not going to take time to read it either. <clears throat> but Nebuchadnezzar was by far greater and monarch than Herod. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, was king of Babylon, and Babylon at that time uh, controlled the world of, their, of the world, the, the territory that they knew about. Um, Babylon was an extensive empire, and at its top, at the, at the time of this writing, was Nebuchadnezzar, a very, very powerful warrior and builder, extremely wealthy because he had tribute coming into him from many other places, many ports of call. So, so he had a lot to work with, and he did a lot with it, and you've read how, you know, uh, he built the city of Babylon and other, other cities there. And, and great public works man. Accomplished a lot. But in Daniel chapter 4, there's this unique moment, this story, where it says one day he just got a little too high on his own self. And it says, um, verse 29 of Daniel 4, as the king was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon that I have built? And he goes on and on. He kind of just hooks his fingers under his suspenders and just looks around and says, man, I'm pretty good. I am pretty good. And, and he just he aggrandizes himself. And the significant part is, he never even tips his hat to God. And the Lord said, you know, I'm only going to put up with so much of that kind of an attitude. That's not why I put people down on earth to think that they run it and create all the schemes and, and get all the power for themselves. I gave them intelligence, but that should reflect back to me. And so the Lord, it says, uh, took... Nebuchadnezzar, immediately, he was driven away from people, um, he ate grass like a cattle, his body was drenched with the dew of heaven, his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle, his nails like the claw of a bird. There was seven years, Daniel had already talked to him about this, that some things that were going to happen. And, and he went insane. And he just, he just basically lived like a wild animal. And at the end of that time, Nebuchadnezzar says, I want to read it. At that time, my sanity was restored and my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne, even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, listen to this. It doesn't sound like the same dude. I praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven because everything He does is right and all His ways are just and all who walk in pride He will humble. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar basically says, as he's, as he's describing here, you know, I went through a period of my life where I was crazy. I went through a period of my life where I was, I was, I was just stupid. And I thought, I actually accomplished. I thought I was so great and so smart that really there really wasn't anybody that knew quite as much as I did. I've met folks that I think actually believe that about themselves. And I'm sure you have too. That it seems like from outward appearances they think no one else really is as smart as them. 
where no one else really has just the, the intelligence or has the, has the capabilities that they do. And Nebuchadnezzar entered into that zone and God humbled him. And he says, you know, God sent me on a journey to nowhere. And I had to end up looking into my own heart. What I saw there was an emptiness and a powerlessness and a foolishness like I, I didn't even realize until God sent me far away from everything and everyone. And I realized how empty I really was. And that's when I actually got smart. And I realized that the whole thing wasn't about me to start with. And Babylon wasn't the great city that I had built. Babylon was... And, 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 and so, Nebuchadnezzar had this moment where he saw things in the right perspective. And that's why I say, I mean, he says, we just read it, my sanity was restored. There was a time where when he didn't recognize the right progression of things, and he thought he was at the top of everything, he says, basically, I was insane. I was that nuts. And it was really only when I put God on the throne that I, and saw myself in humble relationship with Him that I actually really woke up and became a sane person. Now, you may say, oh, David, you're just being dramatic. Not everybody who doesn't acknowledge God is insane. Not by our definitions, but by God's definitions, I would say yes, they are. They're, they're not understanding who they really are. Okay, one more. This is an unusual story, and you might not have ever even seen or thought of this before. But I was reading recently, and it leaped out at me so strongly, the plight of this poor lady named Leah. This is in Genesis chapter 29. Remember, Leah was, had an unenviable position of being in a, pilgr- a, a plural marriage. She was, uh, her husband Jacob was a polygamist, we would say. And not only was there two wives here to start with, but the other wife was her sister, who was physically far more beautiful and attractive than she was. So this poor gal, she has this unenviable job of somehow trying to make a relationship and a marriage work. And she has a competitor, her own beautiful sister. And it's hard. And God had pity on Leah. And it says in Genesis 29 that God made Rachel where she couldn't have babies. But Leah began to have babies. The Lord was trying to work on Leah's behalf and and bring some softness into the heart of Jacob. And so Leah, it says, had a baby boy. And she said, "Ah, this is going to bring us together. And she said, I'm going to call this baby Ruben, Ruben, because I can say to my husband, look, a son. But Ruben is a play on words. It's also, it also practically means the same thing as misery. I'm miserable. I'm, and, so, and so in a sense, in a sense, Leah was sort of saying, I feel sorry for myself in this miserable situation. But she hoped the baby would salvage it, but it didn't change anything. And then she had another baby, another son. And she, um, she, was, she got very excited about that. And she said, well, this one, this one I'm going to, uh, I got to look here, I forget his name. What's his name, somebody? 
Simeon, this one, um, God heard my prayer, and this is going to be my answer. I'm going to, he's going to draw me. She was looking for affection and for love and understanding from her husband. Didn't work, same thing. So then she had a third baby, son. And she said, I'm going to call this one Asher because surely this one is going to pull me together and attach me to my husband. Poor, poor Leah. She was, she was doing everything she could to just try to, to bring some life to this relationship that really didn't exist. They were, she was just a ba- his baby's mother, but there wasn't anything there. And he didn't, you know, he was fooled when he married her. You know the story. And so... She's in a pretty low place. She's got three sons and she's got a husband that doesn't love her. And then she got pregnant again. This is right at the end of chapter 29. There's a very significant phrase. Leah said, you know, I've been looking at this wrong. I've been trying to manipulate my husband. I've been trying to impress my husband with the gift that I can give him of these sons. I need to get over my husband. I could give him all the sons in the world and it won't make him love me. I need to put my attention on the Lord because the Lord already loves me. And if you will read there in that verse, in that phrase, she said something very, very significant. This time, I didn't do this with number one, two, and three, but this time, I'm going to praise the Lord. I will call this one Yehuda which means praise. And you know the story. We call it Judah. And Judah became the father of the tribe from which King David and Jesus came. But significantly to me, Judah was where she shifted her mindset and said, this life isn't about impressing my husband. Life is about expressing gratitude and glory and falling in love with the Lord and letting the Lord deal with my husband and letting the, the Lord work on things there with my husband. In other words, gratitude to God is not only the foundation of sanity, but it's the key to a healthy and confident self-image. Not, being, not bearing the weight of the world. In other words, Leah was saying when she realized this, I'm not responsible to make my husband love me. I'm already loved. The Lord has already told me that He loves me just as I am. So I can rejoice in this love that He has given me. And that will enable me to feel good about myself. And my husband, if he's smart, he'll love me for who I am. If he's not so smart, perhaps he won't. But there's a better way, there's a surer way to have a self-image that is healthy and confident rather than waiting for your husband or your mate or whoever, your boss or whoever, to give you permission to feel good about yourself. She said, this time I'm going to praise the Lord. I'm not going to worry about Jacob. And things completely changed from there. And, you know, they ended up with 12 babies, but not just those two. There were two other women got involved, and it was, na- it was amazing. Okay. Uh, oh. I'm going to quickly go through these, two, these couple thoughts. God is worthy. That's what the psalm says. Great is the Lord and worthy of praise. He's the inventor of the universe. But he's also jealous. And so therefore, like any inventor who puts out a patent, 
God has said, I expect to be recognized for what I have done. And so I'm not just throwing you out in the universe. I expect you to pay tribute or due or honor or recognition. I, 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 want, I want a royalty. I want a tip. I want gratitude and acknowledgement for what I have done. That's we, we recognize in the human realm that the inventor has the right to be recognized for his product. And God says, that's all I'm asking, but I am expecting it. There is the anticipation of, uh, the anticipation of appreciation. And we can understand that. This is the way the world is set up. How do we do this? How do we praise God? Many expressions. We're, we're making those this morning when we stand up here and when we sing. And, and so many different ways that we can express to the Lord our praise. Also, gatherings. The Bible says this, that we praise Him when we gather together and we honor Him in the great congregation so the fact that you have come here this morning um, is a, a noteworthy thing that in your heart you're not determined to avoid other people or the scrutiny of other people, but rather just the opposite. You want to add your voice to the cacophony or the chorus of all the other people together. This the Bible says is a good thing, an important thing, that we gather together. And then just a third thing I will mention, and I'm done, is the, the fact that in the Old Testament, in the, uh, in the, in the, in the books of, book of Leviticus, where it talks about the different sacrifices to be brought, of course, one of the sacrifices was to bring an animal and it was to express forgiveness of sin and so forth. But it says also there, if you want to make a thank offering, now this is an added, additional expression just as a way of saying to God, I praise you, I praise you. I owe you the sacrifice of the animal. You have forgiven my sins. This is, this, I owe this to you. This is sort of the payment in a sense. I don't owe you this part. I want to give you this part above and beyond what I feel I owe. This was called a thank offering. And it's mentioned different times in the Old Testament. And this is what it says in Leviticus. With your animal, bring a cake, bring a muffin, bring a bread, bring some sweet baked item. I can't remember how exactly how the list goes. But what it's saying is, you come in with a sense of gratitude or with a sense, of, uh, with a sense of, of something that you owe. You bring your sacrifice. But if you want it to be a thank offering, bring something additional. An additional gift. I think it's a little bit like a waitress or waiter that we give the tip. We say, you know, I'm going to pay for my food, but I'm grateful for your service. This isn't about the food. This is the expectation that you have served me well, and I want, to, I want to give you this tip as a thank you. It's a little bit like that. I'm simply saying, here's something that the Bible says, is that when we give, and this doesn't have to be money, but it could be. It could be time. It could be many other things. It could be different expressions of our life. This is, these are ways that we can 
appreciate God in a way that He expects that we would. Dear Father, I feel like you've taken us a long way around the, the, the circle to come back and say, in this season, we are very aware that this isn't an extra thing for us to thank you. This is what we are expected to do. This is upon us. You have ordained that we would praise you. This is the, the pattern that our life is to be lived. And so we humble ourselves today and gladly and gratefully say, Oh yes, O oh Lord, we praise and glorify your name. Through Jesus, amen. Can we sing?